Whoever is listening, guys, welcome back. My name is Grayson Mann, and welcome to the Man with a Plan podcast. I told you guys on Twitter a couple weeks ago that we're going to have some amazing guests, and I thought, who better to start this off than Larry Williams? If you don't know who Larry is, he's been on the show a couple times. He's a drummer. He's an author. He's the host of the Clemson Dubcast, and he's a writer on TigerIllustrated.com. And for the third time in this podcast history, Larry, welcome to the show. You said amazing guests. That starts next week, I guess. Or <laughs> oh, come week. on. Don't sell yourself so short, man. Don't sell yourself short. I would not put myself in that category, but thank you. So I think one thing that captures my attention every time, every couple weeks or months, Larry, and I wanted to bring this up on the podcast, I wanted to talk about your profile pictures on Twitter because I think the last time – so every time I'm on like phone or computer, we get these like icons. It's like these are the people's tweets that you're gonna see. And I see this frozen mustache on my phone. I was like, who the heck am I following that has that? And I scroll up and it's Larry Williams and it's Andy Reid's mustache from the wild card game. So I haven't gotten to ask you this process because usually we're at games or we're doing something that involves work. So the audience wants to know. What is the process that goes into picking the per Twitter profile picture? Because whenever I got you, you and I started working together, people thought you were Steve Sarkeesian. Uh, and I was like, no, that's not Sark. That's uh, that, that's not Larry. That's Sark. So I got to figure out your process, man. Well, first of all, uh, defining it as a process is uh, probably a bit much um, <laughs> in that I mean, really, the only – I don't really view Twitter very seriously, um, whether it's – you know, whether you talk about – I don't spend much time on it um, because I consider it largely a waste of time. Um, I guess I'm going to go on a tangent here, but it's on the top of my mind. I've learned to – whatever the Twitter opinion or hot take of the day is that people seem to be agreeing on, my rule is to go opposite of that. <laughs> and I guess we could be talking about just sort of national consensus as much as anything, you know, just, just the conversation about whatever it is. And so um, the most recent example of that was probably um, when the playoff field was set for college football. It was like, I mean, I must have heard countless times, oh, yeah, Alabama is just playing the best football of anybody, and it's probably, you know, it's theirs to lose. And, and I'm thinking, well, maybe, you know. And, you know, because I, I think, well, I did, as, as impressive as they were in the SEC championship against Georgia, I did just watch them need an absolute miracle to beat an average at best Alabama team. So that's when I said, you know what? I'm taking Michigan. Part of that was I picked Michigan over the summer to win it all, but also for the, a similar reason in that not a whole lot of people were talking about them. And it was just like, okay, you know, the, the usual suspects basically, you know, is it going to be another Georgia or Alabama thing? But so and now I'm starting to sort of carry in it to the present since most everybody seems convinced that Kalen DeBoer is not going to work out. I'm starting to think, well, maybe, maybe he is going to work out um, because things just sort of 
tend to go against that grain. And I guess you could say the same thing about the Ravens. You know, they were being crowned uh, for like the previous three weeks or so uh, before they uh, fell apart last weekend. But to get back to your question, it's nothing more than if I see something that really amuses me and probably amuses a lot of other people, I'm like, oh, that'd be a good Twitter profile pick. And the dilemma that I had, I guess, uh, a couple of days later, okay, when, okay, the Dolphins Chiefs game was on a Saturday. And then the, was the, the Packers Cowboys was a week later, right? I think it was the following day, if I'm not mistaken, because it's okay. all in one yeah, condensed. Right. Yeah. yeah, you're right. I think you're right. Anyway, regardless, once the Jimmy Johnson stuff <laughs> I happened, this. I'm like, well, dang, I might. This is a real dilemma here. I might need to change my profile pick after however short amount of time it was. Honestly, it was not a dilemma because, again, I don't really, I don't really spend a whole lot of time thinking about whatever. Whatever I put on Twitter, I put, I spent a lot more time thinking about how I'm going to interact with my subscribers on Tiger Illustrated and stories I'm going to write. And um, um, anyway, again, I guess back to what I said, it's just it's just something fun, I guess. And I had never seen a mustache frozen like that. So, and it remains there to this day. I don't I don't know. I guess we'll we'll uh, we'll see how long it lasts. So Not if that you're anybody- not that anybody's sitting on the edge of their seats out there <laughs> waiting to see how long it lasts. But. I, I think I'm curious to see how the process plays out because if your guy Brock Purdy wins a Super Bowl MVP, it might have to it might have to change. I don't know. Yeah, uh, I'm not eternally optimistic about that happening. Um, I kind of I guess nothing would surprise me, but I just kind of feel like the Chiefs win, although the Niners are favored, which I was a little surprised about. Um, who knows? It's been a it's been a lot of fun uh, being sort of glued to the NFL playoffs, similar to the NBA playoffs last year. It's been fun to um, to sort of dive in to some professional, high level professional sports uh, over the last year or two. Because I used to just sort of ignore it, ignore it all. Um, mainly because I'm so consumed with college football and what I cover, but it's been a really cool diversion to, to uh, actually really pay a lot of attention to it when, when it gets down to the sort of high stakes time. Yeah. And I got burned twice uh, last weekend with my picks. I, I thought the Ravens and the lions were going to be feasting up, but I think I was guilty of picking with my heart instead of my head. Instead of going, I think I'm going to pick the two best teams here versus I'm going to pick the two best stories. Uh, Lamar Jackson and the Ravens melted down. Uh, and the Lions just I they just got away from them. 49ers started to, I, I, whether it's the fourth down decisions of what people believe or it, Brock Purdy playing, I think, the best second half of his career in certain aspects. So I got I got caught and I might I, I might be forced to, Pick the Chiefs just simply because you it's like the Patriots. You can't bet against Brady and Belichick. You can't bet against Patrick Mahomes in any situation. Here's a sort of a dilemma on uh on I guess rooting interest or sort of subconsciously what you want to happen. So I mean I've I've been pulling for the Niners. I'm a bandwagon. There we go. Actually, we go. 
Like I, I started liking them back when Harbaugh was there because I liked the offense they had with Kaepernick and all that. And that extended into um, Jimmy G and then, of course, to, to now. But I had, as I sort of thought about the matchups late last week, I'm starting to think, you know, I think both, I think the both visiting teams win. And I just had this, it was one of those things like confirmation bias, I guess. The more you think about it, the more you convince yourself it's going to happen. And so then the more you sort of are drawn to hoping that result happens because you want to be right, right? right? Everybody goes for themselves more than anything. And so I had, I had shared that in a few of my text chains that I have with various friends who are also watching it. And I said, I guess on Friday and Saturday, like, I've got a weird feeling that both visiting teams win. Like how much would I win in Vegas if I, you know, put $500 on it? Not that I ever would. I'm too chicken to do that. But <laughs> um, so then when the Chiefs start just blazing early in the game in Baltimore, where I would ordinarily pull for the Ravens because I really love Lamar Jackson and love the offense and all that, I started thinking, okay, well, it looks like I'm right, you know. Um, but then it got so, the game got so dull and the Ravens were vomiting all over themselves with stupid penalties and Lamar Jackson was so uncomfortable. Then I started pulling for the Ravens again because I wanted to see a good game. And so it's that back and forth. Well, so then the in the next game, when the Lions just come out on a tear, it's like, oh, yeah, I was right. But then you want the Niners to win. So anyway, I just know that I think the, the professional playoff, uh, the, the playoff situations that I've referred to, it's sort of given me an opportunity to sort of latch on to whatever. Because I don't really – well, you know, with college football, I'm almost purely analytical and clinical in how I follow it. And, you know, not like I'm a robot or anything, but, you know, I don't really have much rooting interest at all. So it's been fun to sort of, quote unquote, be a bit of a fan um, with some of these postseasons at the professional level. Well, right. Especially with uh, Saturdays, you got to keep it. There's no you can't show that any like fan, especially at the Clemson games. And so you get to kind of turn it back on in a sense on Sunday and watch those playoff games. And it's, it's going to be fun. I'm really excited about the Super Bowl, uh, more or less just because I think this might be, I, I, this is a crazy prediction, I guess, but I think this might end up being the most watched Super Bowl ever. I think purely because of the Taylor Swift effect and it's had on just the discourse. And I know there's, it's such a heavy topic, but I think it's so fascinating that it's brought so many different people in to watch the game. And I think it's great for football, especially the NFL. That's it's having to battle its, its rival in college football. That's constantly changing. And so to bring in a different demographic and bring in a different set of eyes to the game, it's, I think it's only going to benefit it for the future, regardless of whether this is the only year of her or it's the next 10, 15. I just think it's fascinating. It is. And, you know, first of all, it, I cannot wrap my mind around how it's become this, like her, presence or the specter of her has become some sort of political thing that just i can't <laughs> blows my mind but um like i can understand how people are like 
tired of, okay, we don't need to show the Swift box after, uh, luxury box after every touch from Kelsey. I get that. But I also am like, you know, overall, like, what's the big deal? Like, she's not even asking to be uh, featured, you know? She's just there and having a lot of fun, obviously. But um, my two daughters are big Swifties. They went to see her, I guess, last spring, summer. And um, for Christmas, I got my youngest a uh, Kelsey jersey (laughs) that was Swift on the back. Well, on Christmas Day, they were awful against the Raiders. And so um, I think she put it in her drawer uh, until recently when I informed her, hey, the Chiefs are looking pretty good. So it should be a fun Super Bowl. I think she's going to probably whip the jersey back out. But talking about the game itself, I'm Kansas City is so good in coverage that – I don't know if the Niners are dynamic enough on the outside is that's the thing that sort of sticks out to me. Um, although you can counteract that by if, if the Niners are committed to the run in ways that the Ravens were not, um, they could probably get to some of that vulnerability in the chiefs defense. But like you said, at the top, it's just hard to hard to bet against Mahomes and a, a confident, really confident team. Especially this is the best defense he's had in his entire career. Uh, And do you go to the, you mentioned that point about the Ravens, their unwillingness, it seemed like to run the football. Crazy. Crazy. Team in the NFL all year running the football, just dictating the time of possession, dictating the physicality of the game. And it felt like they just abandoned it uh, for no reason at all. And it's like when you got Lamar Jackson, who's probably the fastest guy in the field and then, Gus Edwards and that combination, it worked out well, and they dominated the NFL against a playoff team. Miami, they blew out. Detroit, they blew out. They had plenty of plenty of reasons to say, hey, let's stick with what works. And so I could see the 49ers doing that with McCaffrey um, and the Chiefs front seven, if they can find a way to contain Chris Jones, which is always going to be an easier said than done deal. It's going to be probably come down to Brock Purdy and a low-scoring second, ha- low-scoring affair that, Turns out to be a battle of the QBs in the second half, and I think at that point, it's if, if it comes down to Mahomes versus Purdy, as much as I have been a Brock Purdy defender, it's going to go down to Mahomes just because of who he is in that case. Yeah, it's crazy that the Ravens running backs is strictly that position had five carries. Five carries. Five carries. Um, and then it, it felt like they panicked. They got behind two scores and they panic from a play call and perspective and everything turned into drop back, which then sort of got Lamar out of sorts because when you, when you don't have the option game to fuse with the passing game, it kind of, I don't think he's a bad drop back passer, but I just think all the pressure of the moment and then shifting the game plan away from the run, just uh, boy, it frazzled him. Um, yeah. Like I said, I'm a, I'm as big a Lamar fan as any, but I think it's fair to sit there and ask some really, uh, you know, sort of tough questions about, okay, can he get them to the mountaintop? And was this the, was this the 
the year where the stars align the, the more than they're ever going to align in terms of some of the other developments with other challengers. Um, but we'll see. Uh, I'm certainly not an expert. I'm really talking about all this from a surface level perspective. Yeah, someone brought it to my attention. This will be another MVP season for Lamar where he'll end the his playoff run in pretty disappointing fashion. And so it's a very underwhelming ceremony uh, for the NFL honors, I think next Thursday, if I'm not mistaken. But it'll it'll be interesting that the narrative around Lamar and, I mean, his two playoff wins are the COVID year against Ryan Tannehill and a pretty bad Titans team. And then C.J. Stroud with an overmatched Texans roster that just couldn't they couldn't block Stroud for the entire the entire afternoon, and so you look at it and at the playoff narrative with Lamar. It's definitely going to be one of the more discussed uh, topics this offseason. So, and I, I agree with you. I felt this was the year for Baltimore with Kansas City's offense. It was we it was the weakest it had been. Uh, I felt they were better than Buffalo on paper, just the way they're able to run the football. And Buffalo had its struggles starting out six and six, and then. Obviously, some of the other AFC teams, they just completely overwhelm. And then on the NFC side, they'd taken care of business against Detroit. You never know what happens with when you get to the Super Bowl. Maybe it was against San Francisco, but this felt like the year for at least if they were able to get out of the AFC, there would have been like, okay, if you lose in the Super Bowl, you lose, let's say, Christian McCaffrey game winning touchdown. It's like, okay, like we can chalk that up as we got really close, but we got to the Super Bowl. That's a pretty significant jump. So it feels like this was the year for them, in my opinion, but we'll see how it lines up next year. It could be, we never know. I mean, this year we had so many starting quarterbacks go down. It could happen again. It's just a matter of who gets the lucky draw in the, in the NFL, I guess. Well, the wild thing about Lamar's performance was how it was sort of juxtaposed with Purdy's performance in the second half in that, one guy kind of melted, right? And the other really rose to the occasion in the precise ways that Lamar normally would, right? Like to, to me, those the runs by Purdy, mm -hmm. the freelance runs when the pocket was breaking down, the awareness, the presence, the feel for the rush. Like, I mean, you hear the, I don't want to get into the game manager. <laughs> yeah, that's another stupid thing to me, just to me, is how that takes on a life of its own. And it's like, well, how do you define game manager? Like, it just sort of breaks down when you sit there and list the A and B and C definitions or one, two, and three, because it's like, okay, um, he – makes clutch plays it includes clutch throws it also includes plays that are not system plays right like it's when everything breaks down improvisational plays were purdy's biggest plays in that game and uh somewhat similar with his last drive against green bay like those aren't system plays that he's making you know or the type of plays that normally befit whatever game manager means. But the bottom line to me in assessing and contrasting those two games and why the Niners are in the Super Bowl and the Ravens aren't 
it's because one guy really rose up and met the moment and the other kind of wilted in the face of it. And that's like, that's just about being a baller, you know, like that's just purely what it is to me and who can handle it and who can't. And the most recent evidence suggests that, you know, Purdy has the upper hand in that mainly because he made more plays with his legs than Lamar Jackson did. And that's an astounding thing to consider when you, when you, you know, obviously consider what makes Lamar one of the greatest running quarterbacks of all time. Yeah. And a couple of those rushes and a couple of plays in the green Bay game, a lot of that was on third down and not yeah. just third and short. It was third and six, third and seven have to have it has to be on him type of situations. And he, every time it was, it if he was being exam, if these were exams that he was having to take on a consistent basis, he's passing with at least an A every time. And so I think if you're a 49ers fan, you're probably pretty happy about the future. You don't have to pay him for the next couple of years either. So they have this perfect window with the talent that they have. So we'll see. I, I think I'm definitely pulling for them. And I'm probably going to have to, when the picks come down to it, it's, I got to, I got to think with my head this time instead of the, ah, oh, man, I, it would be a great story or I can talk myself into the Ravens or D Detroit's really been like, it's really, and I got caught with it. And we'll talk about this in a second with, with Clemson is I got caught in it. Cause we were seeing it every day with Clemson football and them telling us all the, the right things. And so me, I'm like, okay, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I could start talking myself into it, seeing it Monday through Friday. And then the result uh, speaks for itself louder than the practice quotes. So it's definitely something that I've this this season, 23 to 24, has been the biggest lesson, I guess, for me. Yeah, lesson in being able to take a step back and take more of sort of a big picture clinical view of things, I guess. Mm -hmm. So one thing that and we'll move from and if you want to add a Super Bowl prediction, I know sometimes you're not in the prediction business for this stuff, but we'll leave that potentially for down the road, but I wanted to take a different route when it comes to it. Cause I assume people are tuning in. They see Larry Williams. They go, okay, we're going to talk some clubs and football. I really want to ask a different approach to this year because it was something you said on uh, Eric McLean, a uh, shout out to Eric, good friend of the show. Um, it was talking about just the pure insanity of this year. Cause I think if you had sat, if you, if I had sat you down, like let's say I was from the future. And I was like, Larry, here's what's going to happen in 2023 for Clemson. Uh, it's going to start with a loss to Duke on the road in pretty in pretty wild fashion. They're going to have two turnovers at the five-yard line or shorter. Uh, they're going to be tied with Charleston Southern. Uh, or, actually, excuse me, Charleston Southern is going to be up 17-14 to 14 with a club neck pick six that looked like something out of a JV football game. Um, <clears throat> the team's going to start four and four, and then they're going to go on this great run. Uh, they were going to win four straight, including wins over Sam Hartman, uh, top three pick Drake May. They're going to go beat South Carolina on the road with the flu. Seemingly, I, I think almost everybody, if a good percentage of it, had the uh, had the flu. People were getting IVs after the game. And then they're going to win a shootout against Kentucky football, of all teams, in the Gator Bowl. And not only that, Lair, you're going to be called Nostr Nostradamus by Dabo on multiple occasions, saying that you know everything. So I want to, and not only that, in the middle of the season, we're going to have a radio show 
where Dabo explodes at a fan and it becomes this epic story for a week and you're going to get to interview him. Would that at all be, and so my question really is, would it, is this a been one of the crazier seasons in terms of just the pure scope of, I didn't see that coming, and especially in a nine and four season, it's the record seems pretty tame, but for Clemson, it's anything but. And so how does that, how do you, I guess not, how do you handle that? But when it's this crazy, what is that process of not being able to get sucked into the, just the pure insanity of it? Cause I think week to week, it felt like not because I was overwhelmed per se, but I was like, man, I can't like wrap my brain around this. Sometimes I haven't ever been a part of something like this. Yeah, I think um, there's a lot of benefit in having done this for a long time. Um, this was my 20th year of covering Clemson, 20th season covering Clemson football. Davos 23rd, I think, as a coach. Uh, I think that's right. No, his 21st, because his first season was 03. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know. I think my math's right. But, um, I think early in the in my early days, it would have been easier to get sort of swept up where the moment just feels like too big, maybe, you know, as you're covering one crazy thing after another. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's just like anything, not like any job, but just like any challenge where you just take it, you take a deep breath and, you know, you you focus on that task. and. Um, I guess we could go back to that 24 hours or so, um, that began with the, 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 the radio show, uh, meltdown crazy. And this is keep in mind, this is, this is two days. This is 48, well, 48 plus hours after they lost back to back games. Right. So things are already. Um, I don't want to say Armageddon, but things are already pretty crazy, you know, because you're like, is this thing going to fall apart? Because there's some evidence that suggests that it might. And if things do fall apart on the field, what does that mean for them off the field with, you know, their culture may be coming unglued some and, and more guys, you know, deciding they're leaving and they're done with it or whatever. You think about all those things. Um, but when that happened, um, I just remember, I just remember, I don't know, it was sort of like, oh boy, this is, okay, Dabo's going off, and then he keeps going off. Well, I mean, first you, first you hear the Tyler tirade, and then it's like, oh man, Ooh. this is, I've never heard a call like this before. And then that goes on for a while, and then Dabo cuts him off, and then the the fascinating thing to me with the hindsight of being able to look back on it is the different sort of takes that I had of it as it was progressing. At first it's like, at least to me, it was, Oh man, what is Dabo doing? You know, he's got to stop this, you know, and he, you just can't lecture your fan base like this. And, and then you're like, is he tired of it here? <laughs> is he sick of this place? You know, but then you start to really consider, you know, well, he got called out pretty hard, you know. He 
it wasn't the most respectful of critiques, you know, and so he's got to stand his ground. And, and then you see how everybody else is reacting to it, naturally taking one side or the other instead of a mix of the two. And so um, then we realize that Tyler is a subscriber and he <laughs> has posted, he has posted on the thread on the message board, like, Hey, I was just asking questions that we all have been asking for a while. And that really hits on something in that the criticisms or the questions really weren't that far away from what a large number of people had been asking, you know, you know, have they gotten too comfortable and you know he's making an awful lot of money can he make the tough decisions you know has has he has he gone too far on the hire from within you know philosophy um and so you know just sort of a swirl of you really you know it's hard to really form one opinion uh, uh in the moment and then the next day it goes it keeps going and uh, at that point is when Tyler reached out to me privately and was asking me for advice on, hey, how should I handle this? You know, should I, I don't think I approached that the right way. And should I, should I post a public apology to Dabo on the message board at tigerillustrated.com? So at that point, it's like, well, shoot, man, this guy, he, he, he is acknowledging that he went too far and he's not a crazy, you know who just wants to continue on that sort of line of attack. And that's when I've said, well, heck, maybe he'd want to do an interview. And so we did that. Anyway, I mean, I could talk for hours just about that, you know, 24 hours and rest of the week. But, um, and looking back, I think the biggest misconception is that, is that, is that Tyler from Spartanburg is the reason that they, that Dabo got a fire lit under him. And, and one of the reasons that Clemson beat Notre Dame, I don't believe that for a second. Um, I believe Dabo was on the warpath all that day and the previous day, Sunday, um, before he happened to get that call and he happened to be in a really bad mood because he had already been going nuclear. And his response is, I don't have to take this crap, you know? Um, so my sort of view of it at the time, and I, I guess it's pretty much the same now is that, is that both sides probably went too far. Um, but maybe it provided a good opportunity for a reset for both the head coach and the fan base to re sort of reciprocally, I don't even know if that's a word, remind each other, Hey, you know, Dabo to the fans, Hey, y'all have it pretty good, you know, and I'm really, I'm the reason, not in a self-important way, I'm the reason that, that we are disappointed with now with 10 wins or nine wins or whatever. And then from the fans to Dabo, hey, you've got it pretty good here too, because we're in the third straight season of decline and that stadium is still full every Saturday, you know, packed. So, and then I think that reset probably even extends to more recent events when uh, Nick Saban retires and uh, Alabama calls Dabo. Uh, I don't think he was their first choice or anything like that, but I do think they were wanting to know if he was interested, wanting to know 
if he'd be willing to take it a step further. And he decided not to take it a step further. And I think that provided another sort of reset or maybe a renewal of the vowels, so to speak, because I know, you know, that a large number of Clemson fans, even ones who previously were quick to be skeptical of Dabo and have questions about whatever decisions he has made, whether it be, or philosophies, whether it be NIL, the portal, roster management, whatever. When you first hear Nick Saban is retiring, I think even the most negative fans or the most skeptical of Dabo took a second and were like, uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> did we lose him did it happen and so um you know i think for both sides it it just feels like there's been a a bit of a refreshment so to speak of, of the relationship um you know and that's not to say that everything is just purely going to be hunky-dory from now you know on you know if they lose by 17 points in the opener it's going to not be fun, right? Not predicting that to happen, but, um, you know, so, but it just, um, I, I do believe that if in you know 20 years from now, if somebody were to sit down and write the Dabo Sweeney Clemson story, that, that what happened in November, um, the week of that Notre Dame game, and then what happened more recently, in the immediate aftermath of Saban retiring, I think those will be prominent. Uh, that that would probably be a chapter in the Dabo Sweeney Clemson story because I think um, I think in the end we will look back and say, "Wow!" for a number of reasons. So one thing that something it was brought to my attention by they they were asking me we were having a conversation about fall camp from this summer and. They're asking me how many times did it feel like at one point, and this isn't me calling anybody out or anything, and I'm trying to find the right way to word this. It was almost like the the emotion, and we talk about how it's easy to get caught in the moment of all that positivity, is the Garrett Riley hire happens, and it felt like this is not a vibe that I'm getting or trying to put words in anybody's mouth, but it was like, okay, that's the fix we needed. Like, boom, we should be right back where we are. And it was almost like they were – Things were it was looked at as that was the one change that was needed. We fixed it. It's good. We're we're looking great. And it goes to Duke, and it's very apparent that it's not the immediate change. And so I look at a year where, and after the after the uh, conclusion of the regular season, Matt Luke and Chris Rumfer brought in, and it felt like okay, was a year like this? If you're looking at it from a Clemson perspective, to get back to where they obviously want to be, because nine and four. Uh, certainly isn't what they're expecting of themselves each year, but sometimes it's like, okay, is a year like this potentially necessary where you felt like the year you started out, you made all the correct changes and necessary, necessary stuff to ensure that you could get back to the playoff. Is a year like this where you almost get kicked in the face of that, the, the assumption that you have, it gets swept under you. You get punched in the mouth a couple of times and then you finish out the year with a little bit of a, identity reset where they became more of a run first football team. Phil Moffa really led that charge defensively. A lot of freshmen step up. They win four straight games. They win the ball game. They almost re the staff almost gets a reset with 
Rumpf and Luke, we see videos of Rumpf with this new, it felt like, oh, this is new, this is different. So is a year like 2023, if we look back in two years and Clemson's gotten back to the playoff, which in the 12-team system, 12-team format might be a little easier this time, um, do we look back at 23 and go, okay, that was maybe a necessary a necessary kick to the face? Maybe I'm not wording this right, but do you kind of catch what I'm saying? Yeah, I don't. I'm not sure I would put it in those terms under that hypothetical. I think, you know, you said it was kind of a shock that things didn't get back to where they were. And I don't, I don't know that that is what people necessarily expected. And I don't know that that is what made things so sort of mind numbing uh, when they were scuffling as much as they did on offense. I think it's more, I mean, they weren't really improved. It's almost like you could argue they were worse during stretches than uh, than the previous two years offense. And that, there's so much tied up into this, you know. It's not just the change at coordinator. It's also the change at quarterback, right? Like so many people, and honestly, yours truly included, Full disclosure, kind of wanted to believe, oh, it was all DJ, you know. Uh, DJ just wasn't ready for the moment for whatever reason, and he just sort of was a deer in headlights. And here comes this new thing, you know, in Cade Klubnik. And it was really two new things. It was out with the old as well with Brandon Streeter. Well, not really the old because he only had one year as offensive coordinator, but out with the old in terms of going in a different direction than Dabo had previously over the years with the in-house versus going outside. And so this time a year ago, it was just definitely a feeling of refreshment and, okay, DJ's gone somewhere else, Streeter's out, Garrett Riley, you know, the hottest name in the market. I don't know that I was sitting there going, man, they're just going to tear it up, you know, starting now, because there were still questions about, okay, well, who, who are the big time playmakers on the outside? You know, like, yeah, Antonio Williams, you know, really good for a freshman, but they don't really have that dominant presence out there. The, the, the go-to presence, you could say, and, and then still questions about, the offensive line. Um, and so I think the the toughest, the, the bigger picture sort of concern or revelation through, let's say, through the first five, six games of the season was, man, like there's some bigger problems going on here because, you know, the turnover thing is not, I don't think that's just luck. It's not just like you roll dice and it, it goes against you more times than not. And you're just like, well, just, you know, like a coin flip. I think it's because of the detail things. They had a significant problem with the detail things, whether it was turnovers or kicking field goals or, you know, having to call timeouts because you don't have the right personnel in the field. And so that to me brought forth a, a, a fair question of, okay, is this sort of um, 
philosophy of promoting from within leading to less experience on your staff, which leads to Dabo having to cover for more both in practice and in games as well. Um, you know, the image in my head, even though I, you know, West Goodwin had a great year in, in the end, that, that is obvious. But that point in the Florida State game when they had to burn a timeout because the defense couldn't get its subs correctly in or whatever, and Dabo just flipped out and was yelling at, at Wes Goodwin and the defensive staff. And at that moment, it's like, man, it feels like Dabo is having to spread himself really thin to sort of compensate for this lack of experience with a number of the of the coaches. And what happens when you don't really cover the detail things? Well, your quarterback doesn't know, you know, he doesn't have the situational awareness to hand the ball off instead of spitting it out uh, for a, a RPO screen in the Florida State game, you know, things like that. And then the, tur- the, the lack of ball security, that's a detailed thing. And so um, I guess that's my way of getting back to your question of saying it wasn't just, oh, man, they're not really lighting it up like they used to. Man, this is, you know, this is a letdown. It was more like, man, they they should be better, you know, right? Like, I don't think anybody expected greatness um, because they don't have, they didn't have the generational greatness that brought the previous, you know, the 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 elite offenses from the previous era. But, God, there were just so many funky things going on. And so I think it's just, um, I think it's a longer-term um, proposition as far as it's not just – getting rid of Streeter. It's not just DJ sort of seeing the writing on the wall and transferring. It's not just Cade Klubnick, another five-star coming in and, and rescuing the quarterback position. It's not just Garrett Riley. It's also, oh, by the way, another change, you know, after the season with, uh, after the regular season, another two changes with Matt Luke and, and Chris Rump coming in. And so, um, I think it's just a matter of Dabo realizing that, hey, we do need seasoned, uh, some seasoned coaches uh, on my staff who can, who have not just the expertise, but also perhaps the, you know, the clout to, to second guess me as the head coach and to, you know, bring in some new ideas. I think that's really, um, really an essential part of growth and of, of having the best program you can have. And it feels like, and this is just a, this is a minor, this is also a shout out to Paul Strela, who's been killing the uh, recruiting scene on TigerIllustrated.com, is we've seen that effect sort of carry over on the offensive line with the the weekend that Clemson had. And just that, I think that, I think it was a point that you or Paul brought up very early on when Luke was initially hired was that things could potentially change on the recruiting scene. And this is something that I thought of too is, He's able to tell these new recruits now, and there's so many different ways that college football operates now, is that he's won a national championship. In, and I guess it was that guinea pig year of NIL and transfer portal and all this madness. Is He's able to tell these players, is it's the show me what you've done for me recently type of thing. It's saying, hey, I've just won a national championship at UGA. You can see the amount of NFL players that I've able to coach up and say, hey, I can do this. We can do this at Clemson in an environment where we're not going to ship you out. 
if it doesn't work out the first year, we're a developmental program. It feels like it combines the, hey, I've been able to do this at this high-level program that's won, that won back-to-back national championships and was on the doorsteps of potentially winning a third, depending on an Alabama game. And now we had a program that, because there's some players I would feel in the recruiting scene that they're worried, hey, if if I'm not getting the amount of playing time we in the first year, it's either they're going to find somebody that will or I'm going to have to find a new home. And at Clemson, we don't really see that often. So I feel like it combined, at least on the offensive line and that side, it combined kind of the best of both worlds, if that makes sense. Yeah, and the, the biggest thing to me, uh, aside from Luke's expertise, you know, on the field with offensive line, is the NFL thing, you know. He produced first-rounders at both at both Georgia and Ole, Ole Miss, and Clemson has gotten hammered by that. I mean, offensive line is really the only position left where they really just had kind of a drought. And just to tell you, just to sort of underscore how important putting offensive linemen into the NFL is to not just in general, but to Dabo, when he was auditioning for the job in 2008, he had a big old binder that he put together, sort of articulating his vision for how he would run things, um, you know, in a number, uh, innumerable um, number of ways. But there was a page devoted to offensive line, and he said, we will put, we haven't had, I think they hadn't had a first-round offensive line pick since, like, 79. And he made mention of that in there and he said basically that that's inexcusable and we're going to put offensive linemen into the nfl and well here they are and they still don't (laughs) have one um and that that's a big deal on the recruiting trail when you're going up against schools such as georgia ohio state notre dame etc that have a record of putting linemen into the nfl of course they're going to use that and of course, it's going to perpetuate itself. It's going to be harder to combat the longer it goes. Um, and so I think the fact that Matt Luke has that track record, um, that would be probably the top of the list for, for me um, for why I think this is such a, uh, a positive for Clemson and that he's been there, done that, and um, and the you know, the small sample size to date, the, you know, the limited time he's been here, he's obviously been, been doing work on that very front. And it doesn't hurt when you can say that the, one of the first round tackles that he produced is now the highest paid in the NFL at his position, Larry Tunsil in Houston. So that obviously speaks for itself is that, Hey, he got to the NFL. And not only that, he's now the highest paid tackle. He said, that could be you. And yep. that's very powerful uh, in the recruiting space. So just before we wrap up, I'd love to be able to quickly touch on it, just considering that we're in the midst of basketball season with Brad Brown, Allen Co. Uh, As we we talked about it, uh, basketball coverage has been just a whirlwind. Um, They're 15 and six. And if you looked at it from just a pure record standpoint, it feels pretty similar. And just in terms of the numbers, I think to last year, I could be proven wrong there. But the way that they got there was incredibly different. And the way they started in non-conference, uh, they've sort of stumbled along the way in ACC play. But the thing that's fascinated me, and maybe you have an opinion, maybe you don't, 
is last uh, two nights ago. It was right after Dark Part Two. Uh, the Brownell got to the microphone and talked about the the net rankings and how there are certain ways that he. I mean, you could just feel the frustration. And they were talking about Georgia Tech had just beaten North Carolina. It's three and seven in the ACC. It's three wins are Clemson, Duke, and North Carolina. And he thinks he goes in this whole rant about how. It's overinflated. Certain conferences are scheduling non-conferences easily, easier and blowing them out by 30. And the net rankings don't adjust for that. And he specifically mentioned the Big 12 in his rant. And I was sitting there shocked. I was like, this is kind of the this is the honesty that I kind of appreciate, especially such a highly contested issue. Net was one of the things that I think kept Clemson out last year. And not only that, with losing to Louisville in March and then losing to teams like Loyola Chicago, South Carolina, that were quad four losses. Uh, Excuse me. And so Clemson, I think, my prevailing theory at the moment is if they find a way to just survive the final 11 games and pick up maybe a quality win here or there, I really truly believe that that 11-1 start, beating teams like Boise State that's projected to get in, TCU, Alabama, that non-conference should essentially keep them alive barring any significant collapse. But what have been your takeaways with Clemson basketball? I know we talked about it in depth on Tiger Illustrated with their start, but what has been standing out to you with this 15 and six record and their four and five stretch in the ACC? Keep in mind what I'm about to say would probably be totally different had they won at Duke Saturday, Mm -hmm. (laughs) because that would be the sort of the signature moment. Uh, they were looking for Um, that said I've been surprised um, with their some of the recent losses um, and just sort of what I've seen you know when they were winning at Alabama and beating South Carolina winning at Pittsburgh going to Memphis for just a barn burner and and playing those dudes toe-to-toe it was like man this group is mentally tough is cohesive they're unselfish and they're highly skilled you know like shooting very well and i just i i don't want to lay this on too thick um or be too negative but i just i haven't seen as much of those things of late and you just wonder you know you know one one thing to consider is joe gerard you know he's a new guy you know, who great shooter, but, but when things are going well, yeah, it's easy to be Mr. Team guy and unselfish and all that. But it's when, when you when the team is really struggling and when you're struggling that you, maybe you learn a little bit more about a, a, a first year transfer and, and how the rest of the team sort of works together. You know, Chase Hunter's been going through some off the court stuff. I think Brad Brownell said he's, either about to become a father or has recently been. Um, yeah, I think you know, he, the, he said yeah. he just had the baby, actually. Okay, okay. congrats to, to Chase. Yeah. You know, the depth hasn't – I think, I think uh, Grayson, you were standing with me. This was a couple of days before the Memphis game, before the trip to Memphis, when Brad and I were having a casual conversation. And at that point, everybody – thing was hunky dory on the outside you know you know wow man you know beat Pitt and alabama and all that uh but he 
he was he his his concern at the time was man our depth is not I'm I'm concerned about it mainly because Jack Clark and Hemingway were out. Well, lo and behold, that depth really, or the lack thereof, really reared its head um, at, at Memphis. And then it has done so on a fairly regular basis since. You know, I, th- I believe in the home loss to Georgia Tech, the bench scored five points. Yeah. Um, so that's been up and down. Um, so we'll see. You know, obviously they're in a much better position than they were last year. Um, you know, somebody, I was talking to a friend who said, you know, I think the committee will be able to look at the Duke game and say, Hey, you know, Clemson maybe should have won, but honestly, it shouldn't come down to one, to that, to one game. This team is better than that, in my opinion. Um, so then you're getting into the question of, you know, are they going to be like a seven, you know, which puts you in a bit of a precarious, you know, coin flip, maybe kind of situation in a first round game. Um, you know, their most recent trip to the NCAA tournament, they got in, but when you lose in the first round, who, who was it? Uh, Rutgers? Rutgers in a low scoring, ugly, yeah. ugly game. So, so then it's like, okay, you have that achievement. You finally got there, but then it's like, you don't want it to be that kind of a, a buzzkill that sort of overwhelms the taste, uh, at moving into the, to the off season. And so, I guess to sort of try to answer your question in a coherent way, I'm waiting. To me, the big question about this team is moving forward, can they capitalize on a lot of home games? Can they rediscover a large part of what they had and um, be about the sum of their parts? I don't think what we've seen of late has really been a great representation of the sum of those parts. Now, again, had they won at Duke, had had that whistle not, you know, blown with 0.8 seconds left, had they not had four turnovers on four straight possessions by Ian Shiflin, this discussion would be, man, yeah, you know, they finally, um, you know, of course, maybe if they win that game, maybe they lose to Louisville. I don't know, um, but I, I just. Uh, think that Brownell and the staff are still sort of learning about this team. And I know that it's probably easy sitting here on February 1st to say, well, gosh, he should have learned everything he needed to learn, you know, in December or whatever. But that's the way it is. You know, you've had Jack Clark, who isn't what, who's not going to be at 100%, you know, Hemingway's been out. You know, you're learning more about Joe Girard. You've had Chase Hunter's uh, off-the-court stuff. And I'm not making excuses, but that just seems to be the reality as we talk about there still being an element of uncertainty as to what the shape of things is going to be, how this team is going to be defined moving forward. Yeah, my my opinion has always been if they were to find their way to get in the tournament, if they just got in and – it, it's a team that at its core is talented enough that if they got hot, they could win three or four straight. They could knock off three or four straight games in a row and find themselves in a elite eight sweet 16 setting just based off of the, the core that they've already established this year, but it's getting to that spot. That's going to be the uh, big question mark for the next six weeks. They have Virginia on Saturday. That's 
not the same caliber of what we're used to with Virginia, but I still view that as a quality win. They have an opportunity to pick up another signature game against North Carolina, a team that they, you, we do the what if thing around here, but if they had shot better in that game, they might be looking to go to and oh against the Tar Heels this year. Uh, and then they could have, they have a chance to avenge a Miami loss at home. So there's, you go two and one in that stretch potentially. And you look at the rest of their schedule down the road. Like you said, a lot of home games, a lot of winnable games. They could be looking at a above 500 ACC record and a spot in the NCAA tournament without having to go on this run in the ACC tournament to sort of clinch that per se, like it felt like last year. Yeah. I'd like to say shooting has been the thing that needs to turn around. I, you know, Chase Hunter, it's hard to envision this team accomplishing what it wants to without Chase Hunter um, rebounding, meaning rebounding as a shooter. Um, and then I would like to see Chauncey Wiggins um, get more get more looks because at his best, he can be a really feared presence on the wing with his size and um, mid range combined with 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 his uh, with his skill from outside. Yeah, and he was. I think it was a very early on in the season. It was there was a stretch of games where he was logging double figures. I think it was two or three straight times. And I believe I asked him, was like, is this a confidence thing? Or is this something that Brownells think with him? It was like, I just have to be more assertive out there. And so for him, it's just finding the right looks and the right shots. And maybe it's tough out there when PJ Hall is out in the court and Joe Girard and Chase Hunter. So you're thinking, okay, I can get the more experienced, the more nuanced scores per se. So it's just finding his voice, especially as he's still a young player, figuring it out. Yep, for sure. Yeah, and so I think that's going to do it for us, uh, Larry. This was an awesome hour of conversation. Uh, guys, if you want to check Larry out, we'll leave a, the link to his Twitter so you can go see the Andy Reid mustache in all of its glory. Uh, and if you want to wish him the wish him and the 49ers luck in the Super Bowl, please let him know. And <laughs> thanks, you guys, as always, for watching the Man with the Plan podcast. I told you that we have a string of guests coming along, and Larry, as much as he doesn't think so, he's included in that list. We got some great stories to tell, great analysis. I'm very, very excited for it. And stay tuned. And you also, he's going to find this out probably through this, but we might have a sibling on the podcast pretty soon. So stay tuned for that. That could be some interesting content there. But guys, thanks for watching episode 153 of this podcast. Thanks for always just tuning in. Subscribe to let us know that you enjoy what you're listening to. And have a great day and take care. Mm -hmm.